Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this specialist series, Explore How to Plan an Expedition, a series created for the Royal Geographical Society. I'm Matt Pycroft, an expedition specialist, filmmaker and photographer, and I've been going on expeditions under various banners for 15 years. I also sit on the Council of the Royal Geographical Society. Episode 8 continues our Camp Life mini-series, where we speak to a single individual about a specific type of expedition terrain. In this Jungles episode, our guest is Waldo Etherington. Waldo is a professional tree climber and an expedition and wilderness rope safety specialist. He has over 15 years of experience in remote location rigging and has spent thousands of hours in the jungle. He is something of a jungle expert. Specifically in this episode, we talk about the gaps in current jungle and rainforest expeditions and how to upskill. Waldo goes into detail on navigational limitations, water, wet-dry systems, recommendations for camping under the canopy, wildlife considerations, and jungle-specific emergency medical procedures and prevention. If this doesn't make you want to head to the jungle, then I don't know what will. Finally, if you're looking for support with planning your own expeditions or field research projects, then head to rgs.org to begin the journey. Right, let's get started with episode 8 of How to Plan an Expedition. Let's start at the start. Please, can you introduce yourself and tell me a bit about your experience in jungle and rainforest environments? Okay, Matt. So my name is Waldo Etherington. I'm a remote location climbing specialist. And the main focus of my career has largely been on it within rainforest environments. So I started off as a, as a tree climber, working on a lot of research conservation projects, um, helping out on filming trips. And for the first decade or so, um, the majority of my work was in was in rainforests. So, yeah, different rainforests all over the world, but pretty much a big focus on in that environment. I'm going to go off script straight away and just, I think this is maybe important context, actually. What is rainforest? Uh, a rainforest is essentially a forest that receives a large quantity of rain. Um, so they're very wet moist um, and often humid places and you get different types of rainforests so there's temperate rainforests um, north and south of the of the um, of the tropics and then you have the tropical rainforests which are within the tropics 23 degrees north and south of the tropics and the difference is essentially the temperature the tropics are much more hot and temperate rainforests are generally a bit cooler ace and what do you think are the main differences when it comes to traveling, living, working, going on an expedition in these environments to, to all of the other environments? What makes traveling in these places unique? Um, rainforest expeditions are very different from, from any other environment. Um, and that's largely due to the vegetation. Um, they're incredibly biodiverse, verdant, rich places to explore. And travel is not straightforward often there's such a density of vegetation that you have to hack and bash and crawl your way through it. So ostensibly, they can be very hostile places in that respect because travel is very, very slow and it can feel quite enclosed. Often you can't see further than, than 25, 50 meters due to the, the forest, uh, due to the trees. So yeah, um, they're a very unique place to, to explore um, compared to any other different ecosystem. And they've got their own unique set of challenges. 
But you mentioned the kind of, you used the word hostile, and I think it's it's right to mention that they are in some sense a hostile environment. So I've traveled through them with you, and I think it's probably the, the, the toughest expeditions I've ever done, those periods of being enclosed in those forests. But what makes them special? What makes you dedicate most of your career in life to traveling in them? For me, first and foremost, it's just the extent of life that you can find in these places. They are the most biologically rich places known to mankind. They're just, in my opinion, the definition of, of life on Earth. Um, they are beautiful, magnificent, busy, verdant, rich places. And there's a huge amount of, of wildlife, flora and fauna that's, that's totally undiscovered, unknown to science. You know, a lot of the tops of trees, more, more people have been on the surface of the moon than up in the top of these trees. Um, and the extent of research that's been conducted, especially in the rainforest canopy, is, uh, is pretty limited on the scale of things. So first and foremost, I think it's the fact that there is true exploration to be done within rainforests. And secondly, I think that the cultures that they support, a lot of the, the tribes that I've spent time with and the cultures that I've met are very entwined with the rainforest and really in tune with the world around them. And in my opinion, that's largely what's missing in the rest of the world. Um, I think we need more connection to nature. And personally, I feel that the cultures that I've come across who live in rainforests are an example of being in tune with wildlife and the world around them. Yeah. And I was about to say it goes without saying, but maybe it doesn't. You know, I think in the mountains episode that we've recorded for this part of this series, we mentioned that there are more unclimbed mountains in the world than climbed mountains. And I think when it comes to rainforests and biodiversity, I mean, so much of it is, you know, to use the antiquated word kind of uncharted, unexplored. And I think that's true. Um, yeah. I think it would maybe be good for you to talk a little bit about, you know, what is the current state of jungle and rainforest expeditions? Are they, to what extent are they happening? What are the gaps? Just does more need to be done? Well, for starters, yes, definitely more needs to be done. Um, more than 50% of life on Earth is found within rainforests. And I'd say for the most part, scientific research expeditions, conservation expeditions um, are kind of hit and run, um, as in their sort of ra rapid ecological surveys. Teams are dropping into very remote places and they're doing research for, you know, a couple of, couple of weeks. And then they're leaving again with a vast amount of of new species that's been recorded, uh, new species to science, um, the vast amounts, vast amounts of data that they've collected. But in my opinion, it's rare that expeditions um, provide data for causes that can end up protecting the areas that, that, that they're doing research in. So a lot of this, a lot of this science is almost just for the sake of science, you know, and it's not for the sake of conservation. Um, and in my opinion, that's what's missing. Um, I'd like to see more rainforest expeditions that have a focus on conservation. So rather than just trying to say how incredibly biodiverse an area is, because we all know that most rainforests are incredibly biodiverse, I, th I would like to see more link up between expeditions, boots on the ground, and sort of governmental policies and conservation work. Yeah, you're actually speaking to something that we go into in another episode with somebody else around um, ethics and responsibilities and things like that, because you know, I'll argue to my dying day, I think that adventure for adventure's sake is important and worthwhile. But when it comes to expeditions, I think we do have a duty to think about why are we doing this? Um, let's start by talking about access. 
you know, how do you access rainforests and jungles, literally, from the moment you get off a plane or get out of a car? Rivers are a very good way to travel in rainforests. So if you take a boat, um, it's kind of, you know, an artery straight into the center of a rainforest. Um, so that's a very efficient way of traveling. But more often than not, you start either on a small bush plane um, or a helicopter um, or a boat, and you, you get to uh, usually a village or a small town from where you can depart on foot deeper into the rainforest. So ideally, traveling by boat is the kind of most favorable way to get deep into a rainforest because you don't have to carry everything, and it means you can take a fairly large amount of equipment um, and travel quite rapidly through terrain that is otherwise very, very difficult to get through. And the minute you step off a boat and you're on foot, if you're in a, 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 you know, a remote area of rainforest, there's likely there's not going to be very many trails. If there are trails, they're not going to be well maintained. So you're going to be up against it. It's going to be very muddy and slippery underfoot, lots of roots, uneven terrain, lots and lots of vegetation to bash through. So yeah, either on boat or by foot. Nice. And that, I mean, it leads us nicely onto navigation. You know, I've, I've been stood behind you on numerous trips where you've been navigating pretty expertly through these rainforests. How, what is the best way to do that in the modern world? And what are the limitations? So a map and compass is not often used in, in rainforests, um, especially some of these more remote areas. You're not going to get detailed air survey maps. Um, you're not going to see the topography. Um, and there's not a lot of sort of clear landmarks to look out for. And on top of that, if you're using a compass, you have to work out magnetic declination um, and it's, it can be quite a fiddly thing to do. And unless your maps are navigated, you've got a big paper thing that's going to fall apart and disintegrate within the first day of being in a tropical rainforest. So generally now, we rely much more heavily on GPS systems, global positioning systems, and, and apps and software on, on your phone um, that can integrate with your GPS system. And then you can kind of check that off a compass bearing um, and other electronic devices such as a watch to sort of confirm elevations. Um, so my preferred method, I use a Garmin 66i as my main, a Garmin InReach 66i as my main GPS navigation unit. Um, and that has a nice big color display. And the Garmin software enables you to download something called bird's eye imagery, which is a bit like um, the satellite imaging on Google Earth, but sort of not as good. Uh, but it means you can get essentially like a satellite image on your GPS unit which can be quite helpful. And then that device, um, it allows me to send and receive messages and see the exact precise location of where other Garmin InReach users have sent me a message. So I can actually see that on the screen of that unit. Um, and that also it integrates with uh, different software. So I use FatMap and Gaia GPS, which are two like mapping software apps uh, that can be downloaded onto your phone. And essentially it gives you a 3D map um, with quite a lot of detail. And due to the fact it links to the, to the InReach device, the trails will automatically save and upload in that software. And so will all your waypoints. And this is really, really helpful because it then enables me to, on my phone, zoom in and out of the 3D map, come right down to pretty much eye level and see like what can be seen, what landmarks can be seen from certain places. So if you're on a ridge, can you see the next ridge? Can you see a mountain? Um, you know, what can you see from that position? You can actually sort of zoom into that area and, and manually go through 
sort of fly through the terrain before you actually get there, which is really, really unbelievably helpful. So obviously this is this relies quite heavily on technology. So I always have a backup device. So I carry a Garmin Mini 2, a Garmin InReach Mini 2 as my backup device. And I also have a spare phone. Um, and that's something that's becoming more and more essential in modern day exploration. Um, it's actually having redundancy with all, within those systems. Um, so a spare phone, a spare inReach device, and then my main unit and linking everything via Bluetooth so that my waypoints, my tracks will upload into my software. Then I also have a watch that gives me elevation. So I make sure I calibrate and set all these devices before I leave. Um, and it gives me like another piece of technology to check my elevation. Um, and then I also have a, a compass. Um, and the compass I'll set to the correct magnet magnetic declination. Um, and I'll just kind of keep an eye on the bearing, which direction I'm heading. And I'll once in a while just check that against the compass. Because if for whatever reason I do have technological a technology failure, then it's quite nice to have something analog just to, to check that against. But really, I very rarely look at a map and use a compass for, for navigation. It generally relies solely on GPS units and, um, and mapping software on my phone. And I assume you're just keeping this stuff alive with um, mobile battery packs that you can charge um, overnight. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So in rainforests, depending on, well, if you know where you're going to end up, if you know you've got clearing with good sun, then you can bring solar panels. But solar can be pretty tricky to use in rainforests unless you can get up trees. Um, and even if you're a tree climber like me, if you stop to make camp for an evening, um, having the time to climb a tree and put a solar panel up amongst putting a hammock up, filtering water, all the rest of it, start, starting a fire, um, it's just not going to happen. So I have to, you have to really work out how long a certain amount of power is going to last you. So I use a combination. I use, um, I think it's called a big blue solar panel, um, and they're fairly inexpensive. Um, and that's a, quite a lightweight solar panel that I, that I carry with me. And then on top of that, my sort of standard setup is two 20,000 mAh batteries and one 10,000 mAh battery. And that kind of keeps me going for a week, basically, if I'm, if I'm careful with, with my battery usage. And obviously, I'll make sure I have all my devices charged up before I leave. But those battery packs will power my head torches, my GPS unit, my camping lanterns, my phones, and uh, my radios. So the beauty of technology now is that you can have everything portable. You know, you don't need a generator. You can take battery packs. And if I needed more power, if I, if I was pretty confident I wasn't going to get any sun in that time or I wanted some um, redundancy in my power, you could just take more of those batteries. The batteries that I'm using at the moment are made by a company called Nightcore. Um, and they're making some really decent, quite lightweight batteries. And a little tip for all of this technology. What I do, I get uh, some sticky back Velcro. So really very, very sticky, high quality um, Velcro. And I can stick this on the back of my phones and the back of my battery packs. Um, so my phone has the soft sided Velcro on it and all my battery packs have the, the hard sided Velcro. And it means if I need to charge something up, I can stick the two items together. So I can stick my phone and a battery pack together and have a small cable going from one to the other which makes it much more handleable if you're on the move. And I also have a bit of Velcro on my chest mount, which I use to carry my GPS and my radios so that if I suddenly need to put my phone down, I can just stick it to the front of me and carry on moving. And then 
all of the pieces of kit that I'm using as I navigate, I also have them tethered to me via a leash. So you can make these leashes out of bits of elastic or small bits of strong cord, like two millimeter Dyneema string, or you can actually buy the kind of springy tethers online and use that to connect everything to you. Um, but it's just kind of thinking ahead really about how fiddly all of this stuff is to use, especially when you're on the move um, and trying to create a system that means you're not going to drop it and lose your stuff and it all stays in one place. Brilliant. Yeah. And I mean, knowing you as a duo, we could do an hour on, you know, Waldo's mini, mini, mini yeah. tricks for expeditions because there are dozens of them. Yeah. But I think with all of this stuff, it's a, it's a big part of it, you know, it's, it's getting the systems that work and then it's actually making them user-friendly. So I think whatever systems you go for, it's important to really kind of try them out and uh, and experiment with them before you use them in anger, so to speak. Yeah, I think that's something you've definitely taught me and something that's mentioned in other parts in the series is like, don't show up on day one with new boots. Yeah. You know, it's the same theory of like, just because Waldo does this thing, well, Waldo's got 15 years of experience or more and knows how it works. You know, it's like, test it, work it out. Does it work for you? Because it might not. You know, you and I have very different systems in lots of ways because they both work for us. Yeah, totally. Is there anything else you want to cover with that? Um, I mean, just to be aware that you know, in a rainforest, like I said, you are really committed to this technology. It can be really difficult to tell where the sun is, um, and so pinpoint navigation using the sun. And it can also be really difficult to see any stars at night, just due to the due to the density of the, of the canopy above you. Um, so, unless you've got local guides telling you where to go, um, then you're really, really committed to this technology. So make sure you have backups of everything. Well, given that you've segued us nicely in, let's talk about guides. So I think I'm interested in two types, two different sides. There's a guide like you, a professional guide with decades of experience, and then there's a local guide, somebody who understands that environment, but also that specific area. Could you talk yeah. about pros, cons, benefits of both? Yeah, so um, a professional guide, someone like me, um, I'm very experienced at operating in rainforest environments, so I'll be able to help with many, many aspects, but I wouldn't dream of, or what's the way to put it, um, unless I'm extensively familiar with a certain area or region, um, I would definitely like to have a local guide as well to help us navigate. Um, if you step foot inside a rainforest without someone from that region who's familiar with the forest, uh, your life is going to be exponentially harder. Having someone local that, that knows the rivers, that knows the undulations, the lay of the land, um, that's going to be your most valuable asset in terms of navigation and in terms of how to survive in a rainforest. And someone like myself um, can come with all the, all the gadgets, all the toys, um, good medical supplies and uh, a good you know, idea of how to keep an expedition functioning. But they are two very distinct distinct things that a local guide and a, and, a, and a professional guide. And generally, if a professional guide doesn't have immediate experience with the location that you're going to, I would highly recommend having a local guide as well. And would you always recommend traveling with a professional guide? So thinking about, you know, I, I'm heavily affected by the um, trips I've done where almost exclusively I have a professional guide with me for all sorts of reasons. And that's my own preference. And it always will be, it would be and will be. But I'm just thinking about the type of people who might be listening to this, thinking about planning an expedition, whether it's a piece of field work and research, whether they want to go on an adventure, whatever they want to do, 
do they need a professional guide? You need one or the other. You either need a local guide or a professional guide. I think if you don't have extensive experience operating in rainforests, then make sure that you find somebody who does have that knowledge. And usually that's going to be somebody local who's willing to go on an adventure with you. And I would say you, you definitely don't need a professional guide, but you need to do your homework before you leave for the expedition. So you need to know what your sleeping systems are going to be, how you're going to filter water, all the rest of it. You need to know every single aspect of camp life, navigation, all of that stuff. And then you need somebody local just to kind of show you the ropes. I would, I would highly recommend always having somebody local with you on an expedition. How do you find that person? Um, good question. Um, in my line of work, often that'll be the purpose of a recce. So you'll go out to a location that you're going to go with, go to with a team in the future. Um, and a big part of that recce is, is finding somebody local who understands the, the nuances of working with a, an expedition crew um, and is happy to help. Without a recce, um, it's, you know, recently I did an expedition to a remote part of Papua New Guinea um, and it was really difficult to establish any type of communication with the people out there because nobody has the internet or um, computers or mobile phones. So I ended up finding a local company that was operating in that area um, and it was actually a, a palm oil company, um, a producer of palm oil, but they were the only company that had connections to the local communities. Um, and initially I was very hesitant in going through a palm oil company, but thankfully it worked out quite well. Um, but it's, it's a tricky thing to do because it's very easy to have misunderstandings um, or a lack of communication um, with the local crew and, and your expedition crew. And so ideally you want to be able to be face-to-face -face or have a phone call and speak in person to the people that you're going to be working with. Um, and if you don't have that, it can be really tricky to establish kind of where you're coming from, what your vibe is, what your angle is, um, and where they're coming from and, and how they would like you to operate and, and how what they require from you. So to find that local person, it is tricky. It just takes like a lot of digging, really, like working out who's in the region, who's been there before. Is there anyone else you can ask who's done an expedition there? Did they use somebody local? Who were they using? Um, and are there companies that are operating there? And do you want to be associated with those companies? Uh, so yeah, I'd say the internet is a, a really important tool there. And it may be that you can find somebody that maybe isn't from the exact region you want to go, but they're from close enough to be very useful and handy in terms of speaking language and understanding the culture. So yeah, do your digging. <laughs> the internet's a very good tool for that. Cool. Um, next, you mentioned it a minute ago. Let's talk about water. Yeah. Um, water is an essential part of any expedition. And in rainforests, obviously there's lots of water, um, but sometimes finding water can be tricky, you'd be surprised. So the general rule is boil everything before you drink it. But if you do know the lay of the land and you're certain that there are no um, villages or sort of corporate operations, logging, mining, anything like that, upriver of where you're traveling, and if you can be certain that the, the water's good to drink, um, then you can drink straight from the rivers. But I would recommend at least boiling everything before you drink it. The other options are you can use uh, water purification tablets uh, and you drop them into water and wait 
however long it says on the tin, often 30 minutes or so, and that'll purify your water. Um, but my preferred technique is definitely uh, like manual filtration. And there's lots of different water filters you can get on the market. And some of them only filter out the bacteria. Some of them do viruses as well. And that depends on essentially the size of the um, filtration system within the unit. So there's loads and loads and loads of stuff on the market. Um, you can get like UV pen filters, you can get ceramic filters, you can get drip filters, gravity-fed filters. But the creme de la creme, in my opinion, is the MSR Guardian water filter. And that's kind of a, um, a manual hand pump filter. Um, and it has a head that screws onto the Dromedra uh, water bags, which is a big water bag that I use. And it filters pretty quickly. Um, and I'd say if you're in a large group, you probably want one of these filters for every five people. Then um, you want two filters at the very least. Um, so you've got redundancy within that system. And then you also need to think about how much water you're carrying, how far the distances are between water that you can filter or clean water, um, and how many bottles you need. And then when you're at camp, how are you going to store water? Because you don't want to keep going back and forwards and filling everyone's bottles up. Better to have a large bag that you can fill up with water or a bucket. Um, and personally, I like the Dromedary, the big MSR bags. Um, you can get them in like three liters, six liters, 10 liters, uh, 20 liter bags. Um, and they're very, very useful things to have. Um, it means you can go and fill up 20 liters in one hit and hang it on a stick. And then you can't even screw in the Guardian water filter directly to the top of that bag and filter water out of one bag into another if you're doing that, mark very clearly which is the dirty water bag and which is the clean water bag. So that's obvious for everyone who's going to be using it. And really be hygienic. Um, don't have people sharing water bottles if possible. Um, and don't have people drinking straight out of the clean water bag. Um, and when people are washing their hands, make sure they're not you know, splashing dirty water or using the, the tip, the uh, like drip tip for that bag directly with dirty hands. Um, so try and create a hand washing station that's separate to the clean water station, essentially. And as for carrying water, um, generally I'll carry two 1.5 liter Nalgene water bottles. And I like the HDPF, what's called the, the sort of softer plastic bottles because they don't break as easily. They can take a bit more of a beating. And on those water bottles, I don't use the standard Nalgene head. I use the Human Gear, a company called Human Gear. Um, and they make Nalgene lids, essentially. So you can screw them onto the top of your Nalgene and it has a small like sipping hole and you can still also detach the entire head for filling it up from shallow water. So I carry two 1.5 litre Nalgenes, then I have one 1 litre Nalgene and then I have one or two 500 milliliter Nalgenes, which are the much smaller bottles. And how I position these as I'm moving, I'll essentially have one or two 1.5 litre bottles stashed in my bag in case somebody else needs water or we don't get to water when we think we will. And the quantity of water that you carry depends on how many people that you're responsible for or you have to sustain. Then I'll have a more accessible one litre bottle filled um, in the top of my bag. And then on the front, I'll have a 500 milliliter bottle that I can kind of sit through when I'm on the move because ultimately you need to stay hydrated. But whenever you stop and drink water, if you take your bag off or leave your bag on, that's the distinction between, you know, a two minute stop and a 15 minute stop. And those stops really add up. So what I do, I sort of distinguish between 
a bag off stop and a bag on stop um, and try and do as many bag on stops as possible. And then maybe once, twice a day, do a bag off stop. Yeah, I think we're, we're really down in the weeds with this, but I think this is what this episode is for. And I, I've noticed even in the past few years, like the massive change in how most people in these environments are traveling with those 500 mil bottles now. Yeah. Because yeah. they just they can go in a you know a chest pocket or clip on the side pocket of a bag or something like that and yeah you're absolutely right it's like if you've got it you'll use it if you don't you won't and yeah asking your mate to take the bottle out of the bag all the time and you yeah. know what we used to do but now it's independent a bit of food and the 500 mil on your front and you're sorted exactly and just a, a couple more notes on this um, to secure those bottles I I get hold of uh, if you get hold of a um, a shop that repairs paragliders, you can ask them for old paragliding line and they will send you a load of old paragliding line. Uh, and this is really, really strong, really thin string that's incredibly useful. Um, so I use a, a constrictor hitch around the neck of the Nalgene and I tighten that up really, really, really tight. Um, and then I tie loops to connect to a DMM XSRE screw gate carabiner. Um, and that's a really lightweight, small carabiner um, that obviously doesn't weigh as much as a full-strength PPE carabiner. But anything non-critical, I'll secure using those tiny carabiners, and I'll have one on on everything. Um, and it means you can kind of clip stuff on, keep stuff off the ground. And I have those beaners on all my little stuff sacks and bags for everything so that I can clip everything on out of the way. Um, and just a note on water as well, this is my preferred uh, technique that I'm talking you through here. Um, you'll hear a lot of people recommend camelbacks. Um, or, you know, platypus, like bladders essentially that you can put inside your bag and you can have a straw coming over your shoulder. Um, and that's a good way of, of staying hydrated. But in my opinion, um, traveling and relying on those bags, uh, you can pop them quite easily. I'm talking from experience. And also, I've had my water bottles for years um, and they're easy to clean. If you have a camel bag or a platypus, um, very small tubing, very small mouthpiece. Um, often when you put your bag down, these mouthpieces will just drag in the dirt. So they get dirty, they get contaminated. Um, and to clean them is, is really fiddly. You need kind of a specialist cleaning kit to clean all your, all your pipes out. So um, my preference is using the wide mouth Nalgene's because they just last a long time. They're easier to maintain um, and they work really well. Yeah, completely agree. I can't remember the last time I saw somebody using a camelback or a platypus. Yeah. In their environment now. Okay, let's move on to weather, humidity, sun, cold, etc. Yeah, it's important to do your research before you go to a rainforest and um, and kind of try and get some some data on what's the typical weather for the time of year that you're going there. But that being said, if you're going to a temperate rainforest or you're going to a tropical rainforest, you're going to have a good idea of what you're up against. Um, generally, there's going to be a lot of rain. And generally, it's going to be very humid and quite hot in tropical rainforests with the potential for the temperature to drop at night. And in temperate rainforests, it's going to be very similar, but um, often more cloudy and often colder. So generally, if I'm in a rainforest, I do like having quite durable, thick layers. Um, and that's just to the amount of spiky stuff there is um, and stinging stuff. So generally, I have quite thick trousers. Um, it's quite nice to have vents that unzip down the side because it is going to get hot and sweaty. Generally, I won't wear waterproof trousers when I'm on the move. In the tropics, this is. And I won't usually wear a waterproof jacket when I'm on the move in the tropics, just because you're going to get wet. So <laughs> embrace the wetness and just roll with it. 
but I do carry waterproof trousers and a waterproof jacket. And that's more for if I stop in an evening and I'm at camp um, or if it's cold or if you've got to stay in one place for a while, then you can put those extra layers on. Generally, you're not going to see a lot of sun. But that being said, depending on where you're going, if you are going through clearings or, or up onto the top of peaks or ridgelines, be prepared for, for sun. I've got very pale skin and I get burnt really easily and I sweat a lot. So generally, I don't use sun cream. Instead, I'll stay covered up. So I wear what's called a sun hoodie. I find that item of clothing really, really useful. Essentially, it's a UV protective layer with a hood uh, that stops my ears and the back of my head from getting burnt and it's thin and ventilated. You can have, like tropical storms can roll in with little or no warning in the tropics. Um, and when that happens, often the temperature will drop like five, 10 degrees, uh, the wind will pick up and you'll just be hit, you know, with a storm. So that could be an electrical storm, um, high winds, lots of rain. So being prepared for that is, is very important. Um, and that being said, not camping underneath unstable or dangerous dangerous trees deadwood falling out of trees um, is a real killer in a rainforest and when a storm rolls through often that can dislodge large bits of deadwood that are hanging in the canopy so wherever possible take a look at the trees above you when you stop or make camp even if that involves getting some binoculars out um, and take a good look at the trees above you um, and i you know that's another reason for not stopping at night time so generally in a forest you want to have quite short days when you're traveling and you want to stop with plenty of time to filter your water, make your food, make your fire, check the trees for deadwood, rig up the hammocks. So sometimes that'll involve stopping at like 3 or, or 4 p.m. most days when you're on the move. And essentially how you deal in the weather is totally reliant on your, your clothing and sleeping systems. And fundamentally it's being ready for rain, so being prepared for everything to be absolutely soaked. So generally, I'll pack all my clothes and my sleeping gear, my whole bag, with the presumption that I'm basically going to throw it in a river and jump on top of it. That's how waterproof I want everything to be. And you also don't underestimate how cold it can get in the night. When I was first starting out, I did a couple of trips uh, where I didn't bring a warm enough sleeping bag. Um, and I didn't even bring an insulated mat for my hammock. Um, and I spent 11 weeks in a rainforest every night, really, really cold, sort of putting all my clothes underneath me in a hammock. And that's something to bear in mind if you are in a hammock, any insulative layer that you've got underneath you will be compressed. So if you've got a closed cell phone mat or you're not using any insulation underneath you, then that's going to get pretty chilly. So generally you want a reflective pad underneath there, something that comes with like the Hennessy hammocks um, or better still an open cell inflatable mat that you can put in your hammock. Just before we come on to the specifics of campcraft, because I think that's a major one to discuss, is yeah. um, can you just be quite specific about the wet-dry system? I mean, it's something you taught me with, in terms of clothing. Yeah, so generally we work with a wet-dry system um, and I've got a couple of additions to this system. So generally, every day you're going to be wearing the same wet clothes and they're going to get wet pretty quickly and stay wet during the day and not really dry out at night. And if possible, camp by rivers. And my sort of preference is the minute I get to camp, I'll get stuff rigged up and then I'll jump into a river and wash myself and all my clothes, wring them out and then hang them on a line under my hammock or nearby. And then I'll put my dry clothes on. And it's really important to keep your dry clothes dry and be really strict about that. 
you know, if you're going to be eating uh, in a shelter that's sort of away from your hammock and it's pissing it down with rain, it's really muddy, then maybe don't even put your, your dry clothes on until you're in your hammock and actually totally dry. Because generally when something gets wet in a rainforest, it's, it stays wet. It's really hard to dry it out. So keep your dry stuff dry and in a, in a dry bag um, and keep your wet stuff wet and just be really strict about putting that on every morning. The minute you take a shortcut and decide to um, keep your dry socks on for breakfast because you don't want to put your wet socks on, um, those dry socks will get wet in seconds um, and then you're going to have wet socks. So on that note, I'll also have a, a second clothes bag and in there I'll have another dry set of socks just because your dry socks inevitably get wet at some point. Um, and I'll also have another dry t-shirt in there and that's my preference. Nice. And I think just to, you know, you've said it, but I mean, the, the point really here is the first thing you do when you get out of your hammock is you put your wet stuff on and the last thing you do whenever all the jobs are done is put your dry clothes on. Exactly that. Yeah. So yeah, wake up, dry sleeping clothes. If you've got any on, come straight off and into your wet clothes, which feels horrible, but within a couple of seconds, it feels like you never took them off. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, okay, let's move on to campcraft because we're sort of already there. I think uh, this is the subject of, you know, whole books, but yeah. what are the top line things we need to know about camping in jungle environments? Um, so first up, string. Bring lots of string. String is really, really useful. You use it for lashing together sticks. Um, you use it for making washing lines, uh, for extending the tarpaulin lines on hammocks, um, for putting up tarpaulins, for hanging the water filtration systems for everything. So generally I'll bring a big bag of string and I probably bring um, close to 100 meters. And the string I bring is generally strong, lightweight string. So I use a two millimeter cord made out of Dyneema. as my main kind of workhorse string. Um, and I also use a, uh, there's a throw line called Zingit that tree climbers use. Um, and it's for inserting bags into trees. But again, it's a really small, small string that's really strong and supple and nice to work with. So thin diameter, strong string is an absolutely essential. And I'd take probably around 80 meters in maybe 10, 20 meter sections. On top of that, I would take a knife. So and generally, I'll have three knives on me, but my main workhorse knife is a um, a full tang bushcraft knife, and any kind of solid bushcraft knife will do. Um, but it's going to be a kind of workhorse. You're going to be using that for splitting wood, making notches, cutting your string, um, starting fires, all the rest of it. So a solid knife and lots of string. And in that same bag, I'll also carry a little tin that's in a resealable plastic bag inside a dry bag. And inside that tin, I have chopped up bicycle inner tube. I have a small candle and I have a lighter and often a little bit of tinder as well. It's like fluffy kind of cotton wool style tinder. And that's kind of, if you're really struggling to make a fire, those items can be really, really useful just to get a fire going if you need to. So that lives in my box and my string and my knife. Um, and also I've made some reflective tags. So I get reflective sticky tape online and I'll get some loops of, get some bits of elastic and I'll tie loops of elastic, sandwich half of that loop with some um, 
sticky back reflective tape and then sandwich that within some uh, see-through gorilla tape. And what that does is essentially make some um, very highly reflective uh, tags with a little elastic loops on them. And those tags can be looped over branches or strings like guy ropes. Um, and essentially they can just mark the hazards at night in a jungle camp. And that's really important because you'll end up with strings everywhere and there'll be certain little branches or twigs that are just sticking out that could present a hazard. Um, so anything that you can't clear or don't want to clear that people might bang themselves on, just put a little reflective tag on. And I carry about 20 of those in my pack just to sort of mark the camp area. So moving on from that, you probably want to be sleeping in a hammock would be my recommendation. Um, my go-to hammocks are Hennessy hammocks, but there are others on the market. And generally, if you go with Hennessy, I would recommend getting one of their deep jungle, a jungle-specific hammock. The reason being, first of all, they've got an inter integrated fly net, and this is really, really important. If you're if you're not in a hammock, make sure you have a very a decent fly net, that's small gauge, and will keep the mozzies off. Because often in the tropics, you you you're in a malaria risk area as well. So just trying to limit any mosquito bites um, for lots of reasons: dengue, malaria, all the other beautiful things you can catch. So they've got an integrated fly net and they've also got a double-sided underlayer, which makes them a bit more resistant to insect bites. Um, and they've also got a slot, which enables you to kind of feed your, your open cell or closed cell foam mat into the hammock between the two layers. And that kind of keeps that, that mat positioned and it doesn't slide out one way or the other when you're in the hammock. And also with Hennessy's, you can lie kind of asymmetrically across them. So the structure of the hammock allows you to sleep much flatter than a lot of the other conventional hammocks. And last but not least, they've got an integrated rain fly, which is really important because obviously it's very wet in a rainforest. And when you're rigging your Hennessy's, rig them tight, then pre-tension them. So sit in them to get all the stretch and flex out and then re-tension them. Um, and no doubt you'll be using lots of string to, to guy back the branches that you're securing to or to extend the, the rain fly guys. Beyond that, I'd say it's really worthwhile um, having a fire at camp makes it feel much more pleasant. And spending a bit of time just making an area to sit in and hang out is really good if you can spare the time. Um, it just makes everything feel a bit more relaxed and chilled because ultimately, the minute the sun goes down, um, you either go to your hammocks um, and go to sleep or you, 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 you sit up. And if you've not got anywhere comfortable to sit, it's it's not very social and everyone's pretty uncomfortable. So taking a bit of time, if you are with a team of locals, um, they'll be very, very handy with their machetes or parangs. Um, so ask them to construct you some benches and a table um, and just somewhere to kind of for everyone to hang out. Um, and for me, that's a, a really important part of, of camp life um, is spending the time to make a semi-decent camp every night, even if you're on the move, because it just means you can just get to know the people on your team a little bit better and have quite a pleasant evening. You also want to be near water, so you don't have to walk miles or carry water further than you want to because you're going to be using a lot more water in the evenings. Um, so making sure you're ideally close to or next to a river. And regarding going to the loo, make sure that's, you know, between 20 and 50 meters away from camp, downhill and downstream from where you are, um, and making sure everyone's pretty strict with that. Um, and again, making a little hand washing station or making sure everyone goes to the river and wash their hands before and after that. Um, and generally, I'll just dig a pit 
and stick a straining stick in um, or dig a pit next to a sapling and use a sapling as a straining stick. stick. Um, and when you're finished, you just kind of cover that up, throw the soil back on top of it. Um, it's also quite good to have a tarpaulin. So a lightweight tarpaulin, generally the lighter they are, the more expensive they are. But DD tarps make, or the company DD makes some pretty good rain, rain tarps that are fairly inexpensive and quite lightweight, and quite durable. And generally having kind of a large enough tarp for however big your expedition is to sit underneath is a really nice addition to the camp as well. It just enables you to do all the cooking and hanging out in a communal space that's sheltered from the rain because inevitably it's going to rain at some point. And the tarp, you can either rig it from string or a nice big like crossbeam. If you cut a really long skinny sapling and just lash that between two other trees, then you've got a rigid crossbeam that you can lay the tarp over and then guy it out. Um, and generally speaking, with all the camp rigging you do, if you're new to it, rig everything way higher than you think it needs to be um, because life will be much more comfortable. <laughs> Whenever you rig a tarp, inevitably the edges end up very, very close to the ground. Um, so you put the ridge line as high up as you can um, and it will just give everyone a, a bit more sitting space and standing space underneath it all. And the same goes with your hammock as well. Um, rig that pretty much as high as you can reach. Um, and by the time you're in it and you've rigged the tarp all in, um, you'll have enough space underneath to put your bag and hang out. Yeah, last little tips and tricks. Uh, with your boots, generally I look for a couple of sticks or a Y-shaped stick and I'll stick that in the ground at the foot end of my hammock. Um, and then when I sit in my hammock, I'll unlace my boots, take them off and I'll just put them upside down um, on the sticks so they're not on the ground. Um, and that helps them ventilate. Not going to dry, but a little bit of moisture leaves them. Um, and it helps prevent things from cooling up inside them. Um, and that's the last thing, really. Um, keep all your bags and cases done up um, because you do get snakes and scorpions and spiders and things that can give you a nasty surprise. So whenever you're not using a bag, just make sure it's closed properly. And whenever you are opening a bag or putting your shoes on um, or lifting a bag off the ground, just keep an eye out, out for snakes um, and scorpions and spiders and just you know, keep your wits about you in that respect. Okay, so my next question is a pretty big topic, but I wondered if you could give us an insight into wildlife considerations. Um, what are the main things to be wary of? What are your top tips and tricks for staying safe? So depending on where you are, um, generally megafauna isn't a huge concern of mine. I'm not really worried about someone getting eaten by a jaguar in the middle of the night. Um, what I am worried about are insects. Any small bite you get from an insect can ultimately become infected, especially if you're scratching it. Um, so trying to stay covered up, long sleeve shirts um, and sleeping with fly nets is really, really important. But then more critically, you've got other animals um, You've got uh, scorpions and spiders, which can give you pretty nasty stings and bites, respectively. Um, but generally speaking, they're not going to kill you. They might make you feel ill, and they might give you a really nasty bite that swells up. And if that's on your face, that can that can cause some issues. Um, but generally, they're not going to be life-threatening. Snakes, on the other hand, can be life-threatening. Um, so... With snakes, it's it's unlikely that you're going to get a wet bite. Usually a snake will give you kind of a warning bite first, um, which means it's a dry bite. So often snakes will give you a bite, but they won't actually inject venom from their venom ducts. They'll, they'll hold that back and just bite you. But obviously, you're going to be totally unaware if you've got a dry bite or a wet bite. So any snake bite from, from a dangerous snake is taken very seriously. 
Anti-venom for snake bites generally needs to be kept refrigerated. Um, and usually on jungle expeditions, you do not have a refrigerator with you. So your evacuation procedure needs to be pretty bomb-proof um, and you need to be aware of how far away you are, how long it's going to take to get um, a helicopter or walk to the nearest evacuation point and get someone extracted. Because snakes are a, a pretty big consideration in a rainforest. Um, with snakes, try and get a photo of them if it's safe to do so, um, so that the snake can be identified. Um, or at the very least, get someone who knows what they're looking at, preferably a local guide to identify the snake so they know what they're looking at. In my opinion, none of the snake pumps and um, anti-snake venom bits of kit that you can get uh, work. So I'd say it's actually better not to mess around with the bite site once someone's been bitten. Just kind of mark it, um, cover it, and keep that person as still and chilled as possible throughout the whole extraction procedure. Once that venom enters your body, if your heart rate's elevated, if you're moving around lots, that's going to expedite the process of that venom affecting your your various systems. So try and keep someone immobilized if possible and uh, and and as calm as possible during the extraction. I think more often than not, people who are listening to this, they you know, as per your advice earlier, they'll be taking some form of guide with them. So ultimately, they can listen to the advice of that guide. That person can look after them if anything does happen. But I think. How do you avoid getting bitten by a snake, a spider, or a scorpion? Because that's obviously the best prevention. Prevention's better than cure, right? For sure. For sure it is. So uh, generally, you want some pretty decent boots, uh, preferably like mid to high top boots. Uh, at the moment, I'm using, um, I either use Altberg jungle boots or Aku spider jungle boots. Both of them are good. Uh, and that gives your ankles a bit of protection. Um, and long sleeve shirt and trousers um, and again with my trousers I kind of like um, if they've got a a lace loop so a little hook that can hook them to my boots um, and it just kind of closes that gap you can also wear gaiters um, that gives you a bit of added protection although I, I don't really use gaiters and um, yeah long sleeve shirt again I do like sort of slightly thicker material and then often if I'm doing a lot of sort of scrabbling through vegetation I'll use some gloves um, and the gloves I use, they're kind of like um, really high quality gardening gloves. They're made by a company called Fanner, P-F-A-N-N-E-R. Um, and they're called Stretch Flex Fine Grip Gloves. Um, and I never leave home without them. Um, it just gives your hands that bit of protection because ultimately it's your hands that are going to be moving through all this vegetation before you are and moving stuff out of the way. Um, and that gives you a little bit of protection against against some insects. And just keeping your eyes open, really. Um, ideally, having someone who's familiar with the rainforest moving ahead of you because their eyes are going to be a bit more in tune to, to looking for wildlife. But generally, yeah, cover up, um, wear long, long-sleeved items of clothing and keep your eyes open. Yeah, and I guess it's important to have an awareness of malaria and kind of insect-borne diseases like dengue and to make sure you're taking the necessary steps. Obviously, the generally accepted rule is avoidance, and that's so much better than the cure. So avoiding exposure is key. Sleeping undercover, wearing long sleeve clothing, and doing everything you can to keep mosquitoes and things like that off your skin. Um, so emergency medical preparedness. I think you, know, you form a, a big chunk of our um, health and safety episode, but you know, kind of reflecting on that conversation where we covered a lot of emergency medical procedures, a lot of first aid kit stuff, you know, all that can be found in that episode. What's specific to jungles that we need to adapt when it comes to 
emergency and medical? So I think as with any emergency procedure, whether you're leading that procedure or whether you're on a trip that's guided by somebody else, um, go through that emergency procedure. Make sure you get confirmation and that you're happy that fundamentally it works. You know, have the numbers all been checked. Uh, where exactly is your asset going to be coming from, whether that's a vehicle or a helicopter or an airplane? How long is it going to take? And be really aware of how long that emergency, that emergency evacuation is going to take to get you from where you are to a point of care, which is ultimately a hospital. Specific to jungles, I would say often it's, it's pretty tricky to get a helicopter into, into most places in a rainforest. And generally, when you're in a remote location, um, helicopters are going to be your most rapid method of extraction. So when you're moving, keep a note of any clearings that you do pass. So with my navigation kit, if I see any area that I can get a helicopter through, as I'm moving, I'll just mark that with an H. H1, H2, H3, H4 as I'm moving along. And that just means if at any point you do have an, an accident, you know how far away the nearest helicopter evacuation site is. And depending on what type of forest you're in, um, it may be that you would need to just, or it would be possible to clear a load of trees and clear a, um, a helicopter landing site. Usually you're not going to be carrying a chainsaw, but the guides and yourself will probably have a parang or machetes, um, which can be used to take down trees. But if the trees are large, as in, you know, 30, dia 30 centimeter diameter or more, um, like you're not going to be chopping down <laughs> a lot of them in a, in a decent amount of time, um, unless you've got days. So generally, I would say, yeah, keep an eye out for any HLSs on, as you're moving. And again, rivers are going to be your friend when it comes to extracting somebody. Um, so knowing where the nearest river is. And also being prepared for long, arduous stretcher carries. Generally, you're not going to be carrying a stretcher with you, but what you are going to be carrying are hammocks. Um, so you can use a big, long, rigid pole, and that can be supported by bearers on each side, two people on each side. Um, and then you can just string a hammock from that pole and have the patient in there. And if they've been bitten by a snake, ideally the leg they've been bitten, um, the leg that has been bitten will be immobilized um, and have a compressive bandage on, and that'll be hanging down out of the hammock. Um, and their good leg will be sort of elevated. And yeah, jungles are an absolute nightmare to extract someone from. So just be prepared and well-versed on long, complex evacuations where you've got to carry someone through pretty difficult terrain. So be prepared for that and, and just, just keep that in your mind's eye. Yeah, and if you're going to be briefing people, just let people imagine the terrain they've come across, how complicated it's been, and then try and get them to imagine carrying someone back down through that terrain to a point of extraction. And that should just help give people that little reminder to take extra special care. I think that's the point, right? Like we can go into the nitty gritty of it, but it's sort of the stuff for guide school or extensive books. You know, it's that, mm. that thing that's kind of hard learned. And I wish there was a way to say it that would land, but it's, small things become big things very quickly in remote environments. So watch out for the small things, you know, using the knife is probably the most dangerous thing you can do. It's the thing that will lead to extraction faster than anything else is cutting through your finger. Yeah. Um, being extra careful with absolutely everything. Yeah. I and mean, you and I have both been in situations where small things have got infected and then you're thinking, okay, 
now I'm on antibiotics. What if it doesn't work? Like prevention, prevention, prevention. Exactly. Something I always put on all my um, risk assessments in capital letters right at the top is being careful is the most important operational safeguard. And that's a quote that I live by in these environments, you know, like just be really careful. It's not the time to be doing handstands on slippery rocks or doing sketchy jumps across rivers. For those who are looking to upskill with their knowledge of jungles, you know, I think experience is different. I think the experience thing is go on a small jungle trip and experience it. But where can we go and what can we read? What can we watch or listen to to learn more about this topic? Good question. Um, I'd say the best thing you can do is probably get on some some courses with somebody that's very familiar in, in rainforest environments. There's a company called Wild Human Bushcraft that's uh, run by some pretty awesome people. And there's a myriad of other courses you can do with experts um, that will just give you some experience camping, being out in the wild and have somebody there that's got some experience so you can ask questions as they arise. Second to that, I think doing medical courses should go hand in hand with with any remote location um, expedition because if something does go wrong, it's not just that you know what to do in, the, in an emergency, but it's that you're familiar with the process. So often in rainforests, like we just said, you're looking at a really extended evacuation time. If you've got somebody that's ill and you don't know what to do, um, that can be a really difficult, horrible situation to go through. Whereas if you're familiar with the process of checking up on them, keeping a good set of observations going throughout the extraction procedure, it just gives you something to do. It focuses the efforts of, of everybody um, and makes the whole situation run a lot smoother um, and ultimately leads to much better care for that patient than they do get to hospital. So I'd say doing a medical course um, some recognized courses that you can do at the moment, uh, first response and emergency care, and you can probably jump straight into a uh, level three, most people, if they've had sort of basic first aid training. So FREC level three is a really good course to do. And then any sort of jungle specific or remote location specific wilderness medicine courses are really good to do as well. Um, again, WEMSI, W-E-M-S-I, run some incredible wilderness first aid courses. And yeah, second to that, I think, um, or as well as that, I think, yeah, if you can find anybody that's been to the rainforest that you're look looking to go um, and just try and get in touch with them and see if you can get a face-to-face -face chat with them just to ask them some questions and get them to give you any advice, that can prove to be really invaluable. Yeah, and I, I realize I'm putting you on the spot here, um, but, you know, books can be an amazing place for this sort of stuff just for that kind of nighttime reading. Do you have any recommendations for good places to start? Yeah, for sure. So um, the RGS Expedition Handbook, um, I don't know if you've come across that, but that's got some really good bits of information in. Um, and then the um, there's a couple of wilderness medicine, like field guides, which are really useful. And then I think, yeah, any um, any decent kind of bushcraft book is a great thing to, to read through. And I think it's... it's uh, yeah, stay open-minded because there's a lot of literature out there that, you know, won't have all the answers and might have some shoddy information in. But there's a lot of stuff where the good information is kind of hidden or hard to find. So I'd just say stay open-minded, read everything and anything because somebody might have some good tips and tricks that another person doesn't. So it's worth just having the books there and going through them 
Um, but off the top of my head, I'd say, yeah, Ray Mears um, is an incredibly knowledgeable bushcraft expert. Um, definitely good to check out those books. And the RGS Expedition Handbook um, is another really good resource for that. But again, yeah, stay open-minded and anything that looks interesting, just get it and have a read through it. Ace, well, that's been brilliant. Thank you. We'll leave it there. Nice one, Matt. Thanks for listening. For more information on how to get started with planning your own expedition or field research project, head to rgs.org. This podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft, produced and edited by Laura J. Cock for Terra Incognita Publishing, and Shane Windsor and Laura Melville for the Royal Geographical Society.